Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace. We thank you for the privileges you give us of walking by faith, of learning your word, of having your spirit inside of us, empowering us. Help us never take these things for granted, Father. And also, Father, we thank you so much for your son. Help us never become familiar with what he did on the cross for us so that we can stand here right now set free through all of his work. We ask that you bless this message. Have your spirit guide us. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, Part 103. As we begin tonight, I'm going to ask you all to take a step back in your souls. Just take a step back and remind yourselves of the big picture. And as we go through challenging lessons and challenging subjects, it's easy to uh, get caught up in that thing and even let it bother you sometimes. Where God wants us to keep that big picture and say, okay, why is this what's being taught now? How does this connect the dots to the other subjects? And when we do that, we're able to um, relax and see what he's trying to get across and also rely on his grace to get us there. All the subjects we've been covering and all the things the Spirit is either weaning us off of or spurring us onto are part of being sanctified. All, the, all these hard lessons and these uh, you know, takeaways and, and these commands, they're all part of sanctification. And he's, um, he's purifying us is what he's doing and getting us to the place where we can bring him the most glory. When I think of the American mockery lifestyle we've been talking about, which he's weaning us off of, and then the Great Commission that he's spurring us onto, he's encouraging us to be aggressive. And he blends these things together perfectly. He really does. If we get out of the way and we step back and look at, look at the big picture, he does the work. We were reminded Sunday of our base definition of sanctification, which is to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes, to be consecrated in time unto God's will. And in the devil's world, this is not an overnight process. We get impatient sometimes, but this is not an overnight process. God is scraping away. He's adding stuff. He's scraping away, and it's painful at times, but just keep that big picture in mind. Step back and say, that's where he's taken us. As the Spirit brought out Sunday, it's impossible for any of us to be sanctified experientially without learning these tough lessons first. And I'm, you know, I'm encouraged by you all being here because it shows a willingness to go through the battlefield, if you will. It'd be real easy to stay, stay home and skip out when you're not feeling the conviction or you don't want to feel the conviction. But, you know, we're, we're marching forward one step at a time. And God loves that. And he's like, just hang in there. Rely on my grace. I'm going to get you there. So in our country, the Spirit has a lot of poor perspectives to separate us from, fair to say. A lot of garbage in the soul that we've had since youth that we don't realize is garbage. 
And so he's slowly, you know, addressing these things one at a time. Remember in sanctification, we're being separated from sin to righteousness, right? We're being brought from sin to righteousness. So that's the process that's always going on that the Spirit is turning us from and to. We have certain unique temptations in our country and in the times that we live. And he's trying to separate us from the social standards of our worldly neighbors. And that takes a lot of work because we're so used to it. And the word attachments came up on Sunday. And I really like that description of, you know, idols, we might say. That's what we do is we attach ourselves. We think we need certain things to be happy, let's say. As we've been seeing, it's not if you have wealth that's the issue. It's if you're attached to it. Even your security attached to it. And by the way, this is true even if you don't have wealth. You can be a slave to money even not having money. Let's not forget that. But it's not having the wealth that's the issue. It's, it's are you attached to it or not? And this goes for any temporal blessing in this life. Could be relationships. Could be success. Could be fame. Whatever it is, if you're attached to it, that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. They could be wonderful blessings at the right time for you. But if you're attached to that for your security, for your happiness, you are now a slave or an idol, making that thing an idol. God's, God's not your attachment. You're substituting. So God wants us in our hearts to realize we are just pilgrims passing through and that he is our eternal blessing. He is our security. He's our attachment. He wants to be our attachment. He's a jealous lover. He wants to be our only attachment. Go in your Bibles to Luke 16, 13, and let's read this one more time. I actually met a woman today who went to Africa for two months and then came back and wrote a book about, uh, called Beyond Religion, she called it beyond religion, and how it's all about a love relationship with God. So apparently that time really impacted her. But really, if you think about it, that's where God wants all of us to be, not in religion, but into the love relationship. Luke sixteen thirteen, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot... Serve God and wealth. I know we've read this several times, but I wonder if we believe this because we compromise and we, we tend to say, I can do both. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot be attached to wealth and attached to God the way he wants. In our country, we have developed a perverted view of financial blessings for sure. We are wrongly focused on the blessing itself as the source of happiness and not the source of the blessings, the source of all good things, who is our merciful Father. As Pastor always says, it's not the blessing itself, whatever that thing is, it's what you think about the blessing. And that's where we, we need to constantly check ourselves because it's easy when you receive a nice gift 
in the material realm. It's easy to allow that thing to be your happiness, to lean on it for your happiness. Where instead you should look at it as a gift from your father and, you know, just a bonus. But that's not obviously what it's all about. That can't give us happiness. So we talked about celebrating the wrong kind of wealth. As James pointed out in James 2, to some, it doesn't matter how a person acquires wealth, but rather that they possess it. The focus is completely perverted. Self-sanctifiers celebrating greater self-sanctifiers. You know, even jealous of those who have all this wealth, but how the heck did they get it? This leads us to heart disease, as we've seen on the board. It's a pretty sick heart condition when one stands opposed to the Great Commission in favor of gathering to oneself. And I think this is pretty common in Christianity today. A lot of Christians just think they're here to be blessed. God loves them, so he's going to bless them, and I'm going to enjoy it all. And in a way, they live for the blessings instead of the blesser. And if you're gathering unto oneself, then you've got a problem with the Great Commission. A sick heart is a deceived heart. The problem with deception is that, by definition, you don't know when you're in it. And this is true for a lot of Christians today. If you have been deceived into gathering unto self, then by default, you're living a lifestyle opposed to the Great Commission. Just think about that. Many believers would never say they're opposed to the Great Commission, right? But they're certainly not active in it. It's not a priority in their lives. If you're gathering unto self, you're, you, you are by default opposed to the Great Commission because you can't do both. You can't serve both. And this is at first a hard issue above all else. This is a hard issue. This is not in our, our functions, you know, doing the right thing. Because you can do the right thing sometimes for the wrong reason. God is getting at the heart. You can't serve both. What are you attached to? And just as a wake-up call to those of us who are designing some plans in our heads, saying we can live our own life on the side as well, instead of living for God in every area of our life, we were reminded of James 4, 13 through 14. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We must live like we're going to meet our Lord any day now. Because we are. We're close. Even if you all live to be 90 years old. We know how fast life goes. But it could be any day now. If you knew this was the last year of your life, how would you live it differently? Would you live it differently? Maybe you'd say no. Then good for you. But if this was the last year of your life, if the Lord cued us into that, how would you live differently? And this could absolutely be true for all of us, especially in light of the rapture and the times that we live in, that, it, that it's so imminent. So think about on that day, on that day, anyone get goosebumps? 
on that day when we meet him, seeing that we will all be meeting our Lord face to face in a few days, what can you say about how you've been living? Could you say for him, honestly, or for self? We're just a vapor, and we can't serve both. We've been encouraged lately to change our whole perspective about how we look at American life and happiness and things. Like, what is being successful? What does that mean, being successful? Do we have to have the worldly measure of success and the spiritual measure of success? Are we not dropping that is what I'm saying, you know? Are we, are we not willing to say, you know what, maybe that's actually not God's plan for me. How about a fulfilling life? What's a fulfilling life? In America, we're brought up to say we should have it all, even as Christians. But is that true? And what does having it all mean? I don't know about you, when I say that phrase, I think of material stuff. I think of things. But doesn't God want us to have us all this, have to have all the spiritual things, to have all the all that peace and contentment and wisdom? That's what He really wants us to be rich in, and that, that's what really gives us peace. So He's changing our perspective, our whole perspective on how to look at things, even though we're stuck in this country that teases us and taunts us, if you will, especially through media. Will possessions really make you happy? Or every time you get them, do you run into a stone wall after a while, an inevitable dissatisfaction if you've been relying on those things for happiness or security? Again, will possessions really make you happy? Or every time you get them, do you run into a stone wall after a while, an inevitable dissatisfaction because you've been relying on them. How many times do we need to learn this lesson? Don't rely on possessions or money for happiness. Don't be attached. If we look at them the right way, they can be fine blessings. But if not, they're chains. So the Spirit wants us to realize going all in for the Lord is the only way to peace and happiness in this life. And it's the only way to build eternal treasures in heaven that last forever. Our encouragement lately has been this on the board regarding freedom. Drop what you thought you knew about being successful as a person or about being mature or even pious. Drop what you thought you knew. Most are far from James 1.27, which is not what people think of when they think of maturity. Much of your suffering will dissipate once you realize it is self-inflicted as the result of buying a lie. We have to believe. It takes faith to drop these things. But we have to believe God's way is better. In James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In God's eyes, from God's perspective, this verse is being successful. And how much happiness and peace do you think you would get if you lived in this? How much uh, satisfaction and 
uh, joy even would you get out of helping people that really have legitimate needs? A lot. But we don't want to step out. We don't want to lose what we have, what, whatever is holding us back. But this is the way to true happiness. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? I mean, we all know this to some degree. If you've been in the Word of God any amount of time, you know when you, when you give freely to somebody, the joy that it gives you and the happiness and how it's much better than receiving something. So in all areas of life, that's true. So buying the lie has caused us all great harm in our souls. But the Word of God is alive and powerful, and the Spirit is at work in us to cleanse us of all the lies and the pains. And never forget, we have omnipotence on our side. You know, sometimes you'll get to a point where you'll be like, I can't do this. I can't defeat this. You know, and you keep, keep going to God in prayer about it. Help me with this. I can't do it. That's absolutely true. And that's not a bad place to be. But we have omnipotence on our side. Omnipotent God lives inside of us. So once we get out of the way, once we're truly humble, he's going to be free to deliver us from these things. So on the board, God is sanctifying us. He's taking us to love and freedom. And as weak as we are, he can complete this good work in his humble followers. He can and he will because he's omnipotent. He's taking us to love and freedom. The only question really is how we get there and it, how much we get in the way and, you know, stop the sanctification, if you will. That's the only question. He's omnipotent. That's why every believer in heaven is going to be, you know, purified once for all and be just like Christ. But now he wants us to experience this thing. And so we're each called to live our lives before the Lord in a unique fashion that only we can live it. This point's been coming up over and over in the last few months. Each of our lives are unique to him and can only be lived by each one of us. Nobody can live your life for you, and nobody has your context either. Your life has context, and it's a unique context. There's not one other person on the face of the planet, out of 7 billion people, there's not one other person that has your exact life, and your exact soul, and your exact circumstances. So, like, how amazing is that? Think about that. And you're the only one that can bring glory to God with your life. So that's a privilege he gives to everybody, even, you know, all sorts of people, even those who are down and out or, or poor or even have mental handicaps. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He's like, your life is unique and you're going to have faith. I was talking to somebody today who's got a heck of a tough life, a lot of health problems, um, even some mental challenges. And this person has a lot of faith, a lot of faith. It's beautiful, pretty awesome. And while the whole world laughs at him because of his weakness and the things they see, he's glorifying God by keeping the faith despite very difficult circumstances. It's pretty awesome. And only he can, you know, bring glory to God with his life. And no one can walk in his shoes. And that's why we can't judge. 
Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12.4. Let's give this one more read. And this is very encouraging, I think, because um, it shows you can't put God in a box, you can't put people's gifts in a box. God can do what He wants with each person, and you know what? It's going to be different with every single person. So how can we judge another person's actions or the way they live their spiritual life when it's supposed to be different for that person? Even if it's the same gift as someone else you know. Look at 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. Why doesn't he just say once there are varieties of gifts? There's different levels. There's different depths that this goes to. That, yeah, it might be the same gift two people have, but they're gonna, he's going to operate it this way, she's going to operate it this way. And there may be similar ministries they have, but they're going to operate it this way and this way. And then the effects are even different. Maybe the intimate details of the way they run their ministry, your gift, whatever it is, are going to be different. And it's all good with God. That's how he wants it. And it's arguable, regardless of everyone's spiritual gifts, that the Great Commission is included within their gifts. Think about that. It's arguable, regardless of everyone's spiritual gifts, that the Great Commission is included with, within their gifts. Doesn't it have to be if we're all commanded to the Great Commission? So how can we judge how someone uses their gifts or their ministries. For example, some people might think, why is a pastor planning on traveling to India? Isn't his his job to stay with the flock at all times? I don't know. Do you, really? If we're all called to the Great Commission, how many different ways might that express itself in someone's life or gift? Just think about that. Regardless of what your gift is, if we're all called to the Great Commission, how many different ways might it express itself in a person's life or in a person's gift? I think we be fair to say innumerable ways, literally without number, because we're all unique. If you have the gift of administration or mercy, or helps, how might the call to the Great Commission be expressed in your gift? It it has to be somewhat involved, doesn't it? And the Great Commission must be part of each person's life and gift, or they are ignoring the Lord's calling. So it's between each believer and the Lord. And think of the freedom He gives us to fulfill our callings. Think of the freedom he gives us to fulfill our callings. That's what makes it so interesting and exciting. It's not like he says, this is the way to do it, and you have to stay on this particular method of helps, of mercy. You're you. Your unique soul, your unique personality. Um, Maybe you're designed to reach outgoing people. Maybe you're designed to reach introverts. Maybe you're designed the way God built you, you reach old people really well, but maybe not. So 
it's special. It's unique. You're special. You're unique. And God's like, you're going to listen to me? You're going to let me show the unique path that I have for you and your gift? It's pretty exciting. So on the board, regarding your gifts and the Great Commission, there's no cookie-cutter method, but God, in His creativity, uses us each uniquely, so long as we are humble, as in 1 Corinthians 12. There's no cookie-cutter method. There's no one way to be a pastor. There's no one way to be a deacon. There's no one way to operate in mercy or helps or giving, whatever it is. If we're humble, his creativity is going to reveal itself in you uniquely. And remember, even though some of you might be shy to spread the gospel, the Lord will give you a way that you enjoy. Take the example of maybe being gifted to reach an introvert. You know who's best to reach an introvert? Probably an introvert. Right? I'm not a psychologist. So I'm not, I don't want to get too deep into that. But you know what I mean? Like you're designed to be around certain types of people. Certain types of people respond to you that won't respond to me and vice versa. So that's a beautiful thing. And God will give you a way that you're actually comfortable sharing the gospel. He'll give you a setting if you're humble. He'll show you your path for your gift. And it won't be a burden. It'll be a joy. For example, it might be in the local soup kitchen helping feed the homeless. It might be volunteering with an organization like Meals on Wheels and helping seniors who are suffering. It might be working with children. It might be working with handicapped. It might be helping out on missionary trips overseas. What do all these things have in common? It requires stepping out by faith. They're all things that we have to actually do we actually have to go somewhere, let's say, to operate in. It requires obeying our Lord's command to go out. Even if it's in your own backyard, go out. So again, regarding your gifts and the Great Commission, within the scope of spiritual gifts, the Lord will use the willingly humble. But humility is aggressive. If we are truly humble, we will eagerly obey his commands. And so we go out aggressively. We go out knowing he has our back and will guide us. And this is something that I've just recently come to understand how humility is aggressive. It always eluded me a little bit why humility was aggressive. And finally, you know, the Spirit gave it to me recently that I think this is it. For me, anyway, it makes sense. How is humility aggressive? What does that mean? It means if you really believe somebody, right? You love them. You actually do things for them. If you're truly humble, you eagerly obey his commands and go out knowing that he has your back. So the Lord is teaching us and he's bringing us along by grace. He's teaching us about financial perspectives even maybe correcting or fixing a few things in our soul to free us from bondages, to lead us to a sanctified life. And on that note, we've seen this balanced statement. God's trying to get us to the kingdom of heaven, which is a reality available to every believer right now. 
after we're there, then he can direct our earnings and even our expenditures to accomplish his will. And context is key. Everyone's life is different. But first we have to get our perspective straight. And then your priorities will soon follow. Automatically even. Once your perspective is changed, once your heart is right, then you look at everything differently and now you're free. You're free to go out more aggressively. So allow God to fix your heart. Then the fruit, the good fruit, is just going to follow in your life. We're born again to be made like Christ, to share his heart. That's where the Spirit's trying to get us to, share Christ's heart. He's forming us into the image of Christ. And to do that, we must learn his perspectives. We've been seeing, too, perspective is key. You'll never find it if you don't first have context, as in Luke 12, 16 through 21. And this was a good example of, of context. Um, we'll see this on the board again. But, you know, what was this guy's motivation? It was that he was storing up treasure for himself. That was the problem. It wasn't that he was storing up treasure, but his motivation was for himself. And this means a godly believer can store up treasure, and it may be what the Lord wants him to do for a time. The key is, as in everything else, motivation. What's the heart behind it? And this is where we each must check our own hearts on the matter, and God knows our hearts. Another balance statement. Please do not make the grave mistake of assuming that everyone who stores up treasures is doing so for himself and therefore disqualifying themselves as being rich toward God. A person may be both rich by world standards and rich by God's. Wealth is a heart issue through and through. Wealth is a heart issue through and through. And attachment might be the measuring stick. It's when we humbly follow God's word and desire to learn his ways that the truth will set us free. And as we've seen now for several lessons, the truth is not merely knowledge. The truth is all that the word says, including the commands to obey, to go evangelize, etc. The truth includes promises of blessings when we do and not merely hear. That's all part of the truth. The Spirit's been hitting us over the head with that, right? The truth includes the promises of blessings when we do and not merely hear. That's part of the Word of God. And as we've seen, it's when we're willing to do God's Word that wonderful things can happen in our lives and in the lives of others. It's when we're willing to do God's word that we actually learn and understand things that we didn't really understand before. Oh, we knew them. We knew what the scripture said, but we didn't really get it. And it's amazing how much we learn from doing and interacting with other people. The righteous man will live by faith. And when that happens, righteous things happen in their lives. I mean, like really beautiful, pure, righteous things happen in their lives. We all have that opportunity 
to live by faith and see God do amazing things in our lives. When we obey and go out in whatever fashion God calls us, there will be some fruit as a result of it. That's what walking, walking by faith is. You're walking by faith because you don't see what the result's going to be at the end. And because you step out, God makes things happen in a way that produce fruit. It's his, it's his growth, anyway, in us and in other people. But you see how, you know, we have no clue what we, we're going into at times. And that's wonderful, because then only God can get the credit. And he does his magic the way he does. And you're like, wow, I'm so glad I did that, because this person had this happen, and then it affected this person. I never would have imagined that. Truly a work of God. But it takes stepping out and living by faith. And then we talked about the gospel perspective, too. There's no greater doing than to win a soul. A 75-year existence on earth, even if every moment is spent suffering, is well worth an exchange for a single soul being granted eternal life. Again, if you step back and look at the big picture, maybe this is describes your mission to a large degree. I don't know. Maybe you, by being uh, ill for a long time or being in a situation of suffering where you're even helpless in a certain area of your life, maybe that's your calling, your ministry. Uh, you're affecting a lot of people that are observing, even though you don't see them observing you. And then maybe on your dying bed, you're destined to save somebody. Who knows? But if that was the whole deal and you only save one person, when you get to heaven, you'll be like, that was cool. That was awesome. And not even a comparison. 75 years to eternity. So some of us might not be ready to go out and win souls, so to speak. You know, you might not be ready to go out and speak to people on the street, for lack of a better term. And that's all right, as long as your heart is good. You know, as long as you're honest with God. And as long as you are praying and say, Father, if you want to use me in the Great Commission, show me how, because I don't know how you're going to use me to, to reach out. But show me how. Show me the avenue. Show me the environment or the setting that I'll flourish. And I'm made to do this thing and reach a certain person. And if you're humble, he'll show you, and you'll like it. You'll actually enjoy it. But timing is everything, and your heart needs to be good. That's the issue. And God is working on each one of us, for sure. It's taken me over 20 years to be where I'm at now, in terms of sharing the gospel. And incrementally, the Lord, in his patience, brought me along, like year by year, some things I was uncomfortable with and I just wasn't ready to do. And he didn't force me. He, he helped me. He, he took me along. He made me comfortable with certain things over time. But for sure, um, there's things I'm comfortable with now that I wasn't comfortable with a few years ago. So he's taken us along incrementally as long as we keep learning, keep marching on one step at a time in the plan, Keep coming and listening to the Word of God, 
even when it's not popular, even when it's uncomfortable, because you know it's all for your good. So what does he want you to do right now? You might not be ready for the streets, but what does he want you to do right now? And never forget, we each have our own pulpits, our own circles in our own lives where the Lord wants us to share his good news and defend his good name. He is your Lord and Savior after all. So if you're lacking faith, don't be shy to ask your dad for more. In fact, this is probably a lifetime activity. Even when you're old and quote-unquote mature, you're probably going to ask God for more faith at times, if you're honest. Faith is a key to living a life of freedom and living in the victory as a child of God. As we know in Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please Him. But with faith, there can be good fruit in our lives that He produces. We also saw on Sunday, a lack of faith never works. There's no divine good works that can come from a lack of faith. You can't manufacture it. We saw Acts 19, 13 through 16 with a pastor's favorite story with the sons of Sceva getting kicked, kicked around by the demon. Uh, Matthew 17, 15 through 20 and Luke 16, 31. A lack of faith never works. And faith is most important regarding the gospel itself. We saw what Abraham said to the rich man who wanted him to send somebody to his brothers to tell them about eternal realities. And actually, hold on one second. I'm not going to go there yet. Go to Luke 16.31. Let's look at this again. Luke 16.31. But he, Abraham, said to the rich man, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. That's a hard statement to believe and fathom, isn't it? I mean, don't you think if someone did rise raise from, from the grave and came up to you that you believe then? That would be our tendency to think that would work, right? But the Word of God says won't work. There's no substitute and nothing more persuasive than the word itself. Someone raises from the dead, right? <laughs> Can you see somebody saying, I don't believe it. This is fake. You faked it out. You faked it all, right? I mean, you make an excuse. You're going to deny what you want to deny. Only the word of God can actually reach people's souls. And when we try to intellectualize faith, we lead people down the wrong path. And I made this mistake over the years, you know, even trying to evangelize people. Um, I may have said this before, I don't know, but my approach in evangelism was based on Old Testament prophecies and the proof that that offered that the Bible's Word of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe for the right person that, you know, maybe that is the message. But that would be the message I use on everybody. And you know how we talked about in the past, 
don't design your preconceived approach to somebody. Don't say, don't rehearse your, your gospel approach, right? That's why. Because every person is ready for something different. And if here you are in fear, rehearsing your gospel message so that you know it and you don't have to look bad, well, you're denying certain people the message the Spirit wants you to tell them. So for years, I would always go to that as proof and try to convince somebody, and it never worked. I can't even think of a time that someone actually came to the gospel from that. So now it's about sharing the good news. It's just letting people know the truth and that it's a faith decision. And everything's not going to be perfect. You're not going to understand everything right now that you say you need to know before you believe. But there is no other answer and there's no other hope in this world. Give the good news. Let the Word of God do the work in their souls. Could be a professor. Could be a scientist who's an atheist. Just let the Word of God do the work and tell them it has to be by faith. You're not going to have all the answers. You're going to have to make a faith decision. And give him the word of God and let the spirit work on his soul. The word of God is where the power is, which is what Abraham said to the rich man. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded even by someone rising from the dead. So we saw on Sunday, MacArthur on Luke 16.31. This speaks powerfully to the singular sufficiency of scripture to overcome unbelief. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. That's what it says in Romans 1.16. The gospel itself, that's the power of God unto salvation. Since unbelief is at the heart a moral rather than an intellectual problem, no amount of evidences will ever turn unbelief to faith. So again, here we see getting out of your own way not giving the gospel the way you want or trying to convince somebody or having a rehearsed approach on what you think will work or should we just be have this attitude no amount of evidences will ever turn unbelief to faith give somebody the truth tell somebody the gospel that's where the power is and the spirit will do it and then MacArthur went on to uh, continue saying but the revealed word of God has inherent power to do so. John 6, 63, Hebrews 4, 12, James 1, 18, 1 Peter 1, 23. The word of God has inherent power to do so. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Go to Hebrews 4, 12. We're not going to look at all these verses again, but just let's see the wording in Hebrews 4, 12 again. And believe this by faith. Believe this is all you need for your equipment, for your tools. You have the Spirit, and what the Spirit uses is the Word. And by the way, when I say using the Word, you don't have to quote the Scripture exactly and give the verse where it is to people. If you know what the Word of God says, tell people what the Word of God says. And if they say, where's that in the Bible? By the way, how many people are going to say, where's that in the Bible? unless you're debating a, a fellow believer. So if you're given the gospel, don't worry about that stuff about, I don't know where it is in the Bible. That's a cop-out. 
you know the truth. If you read your Bible, you know the truth. Share the truth. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you realize how deep the word goes? Beyond physical things, it divides the soul and the spirit. Only God can divide the soul and the spirit. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God does that, people. So when we give the Word of God like water, and don't worry about the results, and don't try to convince somebody, the Spirit is going to do this in their souls. If they're humble, it's going to work. If they're not, He's going to let them go. But this is the type of activity that is unexplainable that happens in the soul of somebody who receives the Word or the Gospel. It's wonderful, and it's supernatural. So also on Sunday, the Spirit gave us some principles that were inscribed on the walls of the mine shaft as we made our travels. One is knowing is not living. Short but sweet and true. Knowing is not living. We've been encouraged to not deceive ourselves into thinking knowing is living the spiritual life. Two totally separate things. We've been designed by God to use the tools He's given us, not just collect them in a toolbox. You could have the most fabulous tool in the world, the most powerful, most expensive tool in the world, but in that box, it does zero. Faith without works is dead, for example. God's given us these tools, and if we pull them out, they are divinely powerful. And the Word of God is number one. We've also seen that arrogant people lack faith in God. Arrogant people lack faith in God. If there's no faith, if they refuse to accept Christ, they are living in arrogance. It could be the nicest person in the world. It could be the sweetest little grandmother you've ever met. But if they say no to Christ, there's an arrogance in their soul that is saying, no, I don't need him. In James 1, 7 through 8, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then we've also seen for a few messages now, God's repeating, God demands our humility. Arrogance cannot deliver you. Only God can, leaving you with one single option, humility. A saved, delivered person is an obedient one. An obedient person enjoys God's peace in time. A disobedient one doesn't. That's just the truth of the matter. And we had an interesting perspective that gives us the right way to look at our daily struggles on the board. Living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off of the victor's stand than trying to climb up. Go again to 1 John 5, verse 4. And this is a perspective that can really set us free. 
as we struggle with certain things in our lives every day, we have to remember where we're standing. We're not, we're not like in desperation. We're not unsaved. You know, we're not, we don't have to work ourselves to be saved. We are saved. We're, we're promoted. We're, we're there by God's grace. So that really should change everything in how we look at our daily struggle. 1 John 5, 4, whatever, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. With faith, mountains will move, as we've seen. And God is at work in your life. He is. You could be right now the most negative person listening to this message. You could be the most doubting, hopeless person listening to this message right now. God is working in your life even through that. And one day you're going to look back on it and laugh. He's omnipotent, and he lives inside of you. In his omnipotence, he can make something truly good out of our lives, regardless of our station in life, regardless of our weaknesses. So regarding your experiential sanctification, God looks forward to sanctifying you. He's going to put you in unique situations where only you can bring Him glory. Wonderful thing. Think about that. God put you in a certain life with a certain family, with a certain location, and with a certain calling and assignment on your life. There's a reason He did all that. It's unique to everybody else's situation, life, family, location, assignment, even your gift, even if it's the same, is different, as we've seen. So embrace the fact that it's unique. Right now, accept where you are as where you're supposed to be for some reason, even if it seems unfair. Accepting is calling in life is what gives us freedom. And accepting where he's placed you as one of his soldiers. Be set free by obedience to your Lord and Savior. Only the right perspective will set you free. Go to 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. Only the right perspective will set you free. Where has he placed you as one of his soldiers? And regardless of the answer to that, are you correct in questioning where he placed you as a soldier? If he's the commander-in-chief and we're his soldiers, doesn't he know what job is best for us to do? Does it matter what we think? Look at 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. There's the American, quote-unquote, dream. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. If Jesus were right here right now and he told you to stand by that door for the next 20 years, you'd happily do it if you actually saw him but he wants us to do it by faith. 
That's what brings them glory. So this perspective in 2 Timothy 2.4. Okay, I accept your call on my life, Father. This wasn't my plan. And the reason I'm so unhappy with it is because I had expectations. I had designs on my life. I thought I could be a Christian and do my own thing. But it's wood, hay, and straw. It doesn't give me happiness anyway. I'm finally starting to learn. And I'm going to accept your place for me. That's the right perspective. To accept wherever he has asked you to stand guard. And as came out on Sunday, right now is the time to be humble about what the Spirit's been saying to us. Right now. You changing your perspective right now and accepting where God's placed you can change your whole life and change your whole perspective. It can set you free if we let it. What honors God even more is when we don't understand it all. And we still do it. We still walk by faith. We still stand guard at the post He's given us. We don't have to understand the details. And there's no way what God is asking you to do is more difficult than what He asked Noah to do from a faith perspective. We saw in Hebrews 11.7, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah believed God about things that were never seen before in human history, like rain and a flood and an ark. What the heck's an ark? So talk about walking by faith. If he can do it, we can do it. It's a faith perspective. So in the right moment, Noah obeyed God. You don't think he had one of those points of critical discernment where God's telling him to do this crazy thing? And there's a point where he had to make that final decision. Okay, I'm going to do this and trust God, or this is nuts. I'm hearing voices. I'm going in the woods and you know, pitching a tent. He had a point where he had to accept his calling fully and even be set free. In the right moment, he obeyed God. And God's asking us to do that in the moment, right now even. And that's why one day at a time is so, so important. It's so important. It's hard to uh, describe how important that is. Because we get caught up, we get ahead of ourselves. When God's only asking for us to follow him today, He's not even asking for us to follow him tomorrow. There might not be a tomorrow. He's asking us to follow him right now, like you're doing right now. And when you get home, he's asking you to follow him right now. And if you wake up tomorrow morning, he's asking you to follow him right now, today, as long as it's today. As our Lord said in Matthew 6, 34, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Ain't that the truth? But that's all he's asking from us. Isn't that great? That's all he's asking from us. Each day you wake up, if I allow you to wake up, if 
follow me. Do your best today. Live by faith. Walk by faith. If you have a bad day, take a nap. Go to bed early. Start over. I totally believe in that. But every day you wake up, he's just saying, will you follow me today? That's all he's asking of us. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has, has enough trouble of its own. Live today, right now, for me. That in itself, in itself is a unique type of faith. It's a unique perspective that most people, most Christians won't carry in their bag of tools. They're always looking at tomorrow and planning for next year and planning for five years from now where they should be looking at today. Not ignoring responsibilities. I'm not talking about that and, you know, things you need to take care of and that are coming up in your life, whatever. That's fine. But by faith, he wants you to follow him today. On that note, let's close. <laughs> Tough to pick a spot to close. I got a few more things, but apparently not meant to get to it tonight. So let's bow our heads. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, that every day gives us new and fresh grace that you provide us to walk by faith. Father, we ask that you help us take this good news out to a lost and dying world in whatever pulpit you've given us, in whatever area you've given us. We ask that you help us do so with boldness and joy. We thank you for your spirit who empowers us. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.